0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, this morning I invite you back to uh, Revelation 1. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be able to open and expound God's Word. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning, and this is actually going to conclude chapter 1, as well as a brief study that I've had the privilege to lead the past few times I've preached. So Revelation 1, if you found your place, I invite you to read along with me, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. O gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts so that we can hear you speak Open our ears to hear this great revelation you provided through your word. Open our eyes, Father, that we'll see Jesus, our wonderful Savior, with the adoration and worship that he deserves. Guard our minds this morning from distraction and our hearts from contempt. We humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever heard the phrase, perception is reality? Perception is reality. It's the idea that something is real simply because we perceive that it's real, regardless if it's actually true. And I'll give you an example to illustrate. Have you ever seen the Christmas movie Home Alone? I think most of us have seen the movie Home Alone. Um, In the movie, when Kevin, the main character, wakes up to find that he's been left home alone, he begins searching frantically around the house for his family. He's going to all the rooms, and this search eventually leads him to the basement where he's confronted with something that's really scary the furnace. In fact, as he looks at the furnace, something really crazy and amazing happens. This fire ignites in it, and then the iron gates open up like a mouth, and it actually starts to roar like a monster. If you remember the movie, I'm sure you remember the scene. Well, when Kevin looked at the furnace, what did he see? He saw a monster. And so that perception caused him to fear, and that fear triggered his flight response. He was out of there, man. He was up the stairs and away from that monster. But then you may recall later in the film, his perception of the furnace actually changes. So there comes a point where Kevin's kind of like resigned to the fact that he's going to be on his own. You know, he thinks his family's never coming home. So he starts doing domestic duties. He goes to his store, he buys milk, frozen dinners, and of course a toothbrush that's approved by the American Dental Association. Do you remember that scene? And he also does household chores like laundry, a task that's going to force him to go down and revisit this spooky basement. But do you remember what happens the next time he encounters the furnace? The craziness starts all over again, the fire, the mouth, the roar, and you can see he's starting to get a little nervous. But then all of a sudden, his look kind of changes, and he says, shut up. And then, boom, the furnace is just a furnace, right? Kevin was now allowing the truth about the furnace to shape his perception instead of allowing his perception, which we know was very much influenced by fear, to determine the truth. And do you see the difference with that? And I bring this up because I think the same is often true of us. I don't want to speak for you, but I know it's certainly true for myself. Like Kevin, we too often allow our fears to influence our perception of reality. And the result of which is to exchange the truth for a lie. Now, unlike Kevin... I doubt many of you are convinced your furnace is a monster determined to eat you. I hope not. If you do, maybe we can talk after service, because you may have some other things to work through. No, our fears, if we're honest, are much more mature than that, aren't they? We may allow our perception to cloud reality, but, you know, at least it's over the really important things, like finances, like fixing that furnace, (laughs) Job security, health concerns, our future, our kids' future, the future of our nation, the salvation of our loved ones, relationships, work, death, etc. Just fill in the blank with whatever causes your heart to often grow anxious and fearful. And if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that all of these things are important. By no means are we trying to say that these things aren't important. My point is to say that we shouldn't allow our perception of circumstances to consume us. We shouldn't allow our perception of these circumstances to consume us, to overwhelm us with fear and anxiety as they often do. And here's the reason why. Here's why we should not do that. Because God knows what you're going through. In fact, there's nothing that comes to us that hasn't first passed through His Almighty and sovereign hand. So if you're trusting in Christ this morning and you've turned to Him in faith and repentance, let me offer you some encouragement. Not only is God in control, God cares. He cares about your circumstances. Why? Because God cares about you. God cares about me. He loves you. You are His son and daughter. In fact, You are royalty, adopted by the almighty King of kings, creator of the universe, sovereign ruler of all. Let that sink in. God cares about you and for you, and that's the truth, not perception. But the question is, is how do we allow this truth to confront our lack of faith? especially in those moments when our perceptions, however wrong they may be, are consuming our thoughts and they're consuming our emotions. Because when you're in that moment, it's difficult to allow the truth to change what you see and feel. And what I'd like to submit to you this morning is that we need a renewed vision of Jesus Christ. We need a renewed vision of Jesus Christ. And that leads us right back to Revelation 1. So if you turn back to Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9, you'll see that John introduces himself. And this is actually the third time he's done so here in the first chapter of Revelation. And he introduces himself as both the author and the receiver of this revelation. So right there in verse 9, it says, I, John. Now, the first time he introduced himself is back in verse 1. So if you go back to Revelation 1, 1, you'll see it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And then just below this, if you go to verse 4, John then begins with a typical epistolatory greeting, which is just to say, it's very similar to what you find in all the other letters from Paul and from Peter and also from John. He says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And actually, this is a really good reminder because it reminds us of something. It reminds us that this was actually a letter that was written for churches that was circulated amongst those churches. So one might wonder why would John introduce him a third time, himself a third time here in verse 9? But I think there's actually a really quick answer to this. If you look at verse 8, you'll see that it's actually the Lord who's speaking. Do you see that? So I think what John's doing here in verse 9 is he's just announcing that once again, okay, it's me, John, who is the one who's speaking. And then in verse 9, we also learn something. We learn that he's on this island called Patmos. Now, I'm going to take a guess and say that probably most of us don't know where Patmos is. It's not usually high on our vacation lists. Um, Patmos is a small, roughly the size of like St. Clair Township, Calcutta area. Uh, It's a small island about 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It's actually part of modern-day Greece. Now, John was likely exiled here by the Roman authorities, and we can conclude this by what comes next in our text. You'll see it says, John states his reason for being there. Now, he doesn't say he was there to enjoy the sights. Because on the contrary, if you see pictures of Patmos, it's pretty arid, it's pretty dry, it's not a place you go to see the sights. He doesn't say he goes there because he needed to relax. No, what does he say in verse 9? He says, John was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In fact, as Dr. Dennis Johnson puts it, he says, quote, there's archaeological evidence That islands in Patmos, part of the sea, were used by local governors to exile socially disruptive individuals. And this was apparently John's experience. Because wherever we see the words, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus in Revelation, they're associated with suffering for Jesus. Faithful witness to Jesus. So John is there because he's been faithfully preaching God's word and witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily by choice. And this made the local, ang- the local authorities angry that he was doing this, so they thought they'd get rid of him to ship it by shipping him off to this island in Patmos. And this is why John then introduces himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation. Your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance. That are in Jesus. See, John is writing during a time where tensions were really high between the Christians and between their Jewish community uh, counterparts and the Romans. The result is that there's increasing persecution happening amongst the Christians, and some of it's even, even leading to death. So, here in verse 9, John is commiserating with his readers by reminding them that he too is suffering for the gospel. It's his way of saying, hey, you're not alone in this, I'm suffering too. And this really should come to no surprise to those who had also read John's earlier gospel, the gospel of John. Because if you go back to John 16, and you don't have to turn there, but just before John records Jesus' high priestly prayer, he gives us this verse. He says, this is the words of Jesus speaking, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So the point is, is that tribulation is a common experience for us as Christians. Rick actually wonderfully discussed this last week, if you heard the message. And he said, essentially, following Jesus doesn't remove us from hardship, does it? On the contrary, it's something that Jesus tells us to expect. In the world, you will have tribulation. But notice John doesn't just say tribulation here. He also notes that he's a fellow brother and partner In the kingdom, in the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. You see, to be a Christian means that, and you know this, we now have a new identity. We are in Jesus, or as the Apostle Paul is so fond of saying, we are in Christ. We have this new identity, and because of this, like Jesus, we can expect trials and tribulations. However, it also means that like Jesus, we are part of a glorious kingdom. You'll see that John has already referenced this back in verse 5 and 6. So if you look back to chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, he says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us what? A kingdom. Priest to our God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, when we become Christians, when we recognize our sin and we turn to Jesus in faith, and repentance, we recognize that apart from Him, we can never have relationship with God our Father, what happens is we receive this new identity and we also receive a new citizenship. Not only is Jesus our Savior, He also becomes our Lord and He spiritually places us into His heavenly kingdom, the kingdom that at the end of our prayer we prayed, come Lord Jesus, bring your heavenly kingdom to earth. Notice then that John ends this three-part description by noting that to be in Jesus also means we will patiently endure. Dr. G.K. Beale states it this way. He says, Revelation reveals that believers reign, like Jesus' initial kingship, consists in conquering by not compromising their faithful witness in the face of trials, in ruling over the powers of evil, in defeating sin in their lives, and in beginning to rule over death and Satan by identification with Jesus. Listen to this. Their endurance is part of the process of conquering. In other words, until Jesus returns in glory to establish this eternal kingdom, our lives are going to be marked by trials and tribulations. Therefore, we're called to what? To persevere. But here's the difference between somebody who's trying to persevere on their own and somebody who is in Jesus. We persevere with hope because we're in Jesus. We've been united to Christ in faith And we know that He is going to see us through anything that comes our way because He ultimately persevered. John then tells us that He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Do you see that? And his description here is very similar to the one that's used in the Old Testament by the prophet Ezekiel. To be in the Spirit means that like the Old Testament prophets, John is consciously experiencing the presence of God in a very, very special way. And like the Old Testament prophets, John is granted this supernatural vision of heaven realities. So he's seeing into the heavenly realm and seeing things that are true that otherwise we wouldn't see. But did you notice when John received this vision? Look again to the text. I was in the Spirit on what? The Lord's day. And this is important to note because you're going to recall that prior to Jesus' resurrection, God's people, the Jews, they met for worship on Saturday during something they called the Sabbath. And this practice was actually adopted from the creation account where God created during days 1 through 6, Sunday through Friday, and then seeing that it was good, He rested on the seventh day or Saturday. However, after Jesus' resurrection... This changed, and the church began to meet on Sunday, the day that Christ was resurrected. And Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who actually, I'm sure many of you probably will know, he was a minister in the ARP church, works a lot with Ligonier Ministries. He notes that we shouldn't overlook the impact of this change too quickly. He says, especially since the Jewish Sabbath represented something that was really just part of their identity, It was part of who they were. And he compares it to Americans giving up the 4th of July. He says, compare it to like an American giving up the 4th of July to celebrate something like St. George's Day, which is to celebrate the greatness of the United Kingdom. He said, what would it take for Americans to do that? And he said, it would take a revolution. Because that's literally what it took for us to begin celebrating July 4th. And the point here is to say... That's essentially what's happening in these Jewish Christians' minds. Not that all these Christians are Jews, but this is a radical thing. He's saying something even greater than a revolution happened, didn't it? What happened? Well, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on the flesh of his creation, the flesh like you and I, and then after living a perfect life of obedience to his Father, he sacrificed his life for the atonement of his people. and He did this naked on a Roman cross. And it was during this act that he received the excruciating justice that we deserved. The very wrath of God against sin. The wage for which we know is what? Death. And then after completing this task, he gave up his life and he was buried in the ground for three days. It kind of sounds like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? Going through the process. But then being perfect, death couldn't hold him. Because if death is the wage of sin, Jesus wasn't sinful in and of himself, so death had to release him. And then on that beautiful Sunday, that day of the Lord, Jesus rose out of the grave, resurrected, and alive. And so since that time, Christians have have begun to meet on worship on Sunday. And this verse here in Revelation is the very first mention of the Lord's Day in Christian literature. It's also why we commonly refer to it here at Tri-State Community Church as the Lord's Day. I think it's also interesting to see that John here is worshiping Even though he's been removed from his church community, John still sees the necessity of setting aside the day to worship his Lord. So, John is in the spirit, and what happens? If you read, it says, I heard a loud voice, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's almost like John is receiving a commission, isn't he? He's told he's about to receive this vision, and then his job is to write down what he sees and then share it with these seven churches in modern-day Turkey. And the commission is later echoed in verse 19. So if you go down to verse 19, you're actually going to see this again. Verse 19 says, Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are, are, are to take place after this. But... Did you notice how John described the voice he heard? He said, "I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet." And now that's where we're getting into that symbolic, kind of strange language that revelation so often uses, aren't we? So what are we to do with this? Well, it's John's way of saying the voice he heard was loud. It was clear, and it was very, very powerful. And for anybody who knew their Old Testament, they would immediately recognize this language because, for instance, they would go to Exodus 19. If you were to go to Exodus 19.16, God's presence is described like this. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This isn't unique to John. John is using language that the Jewish people would understand. Then in verse 12, John tells us that upon hearing this voice of a trumpet, he turned to see who was speaking to him. And then we read And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, were like burnished bronzed, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so now we're coming to John's actual vision of what he sees. And this vision is kind of strange. It entails these seven golden lampstands and a detailed image of one he describes as being like the Son of Man. And to begin, just notice the order of this vision. What does John see first? He sees the seven golden lampstands, which, if you look to verse 20, we later learn represent something very specific. They represent what? The seven churches that John has been commissioned to write. And if you remember from our previous look at The beginning of Revelation 1, we see that that number 7 is really a holistic number that represents all churches. So this is very much a message to us as well. Next, we see that someone is in the midst of these lampstands. So there's someone in the middle of these churches, present with them. And then we're given this really incredible description. And understandably, it seems as if John is overwhelmed by this vision and is left to grasp for words that can only describe what he's seeing. Remember, this is something he's seeing, and he's been told to write down what you see, not what you hear. And he's left to try to describe what he's seeing with words and with symbols. And here again, I think Dr. Ferguson is so helpful. When he explains these verses, he compares it to the painting style known as Impressionism. And he says, now some of us despise this type of art. Because when we look at an Impressionist painting, we may think to ourselves, that doesn't look anything like the person being painted. And you're like, you're painting Maggie, but it doesn't look like Maggie. I don't get it. At which point, the author, or excuse me, the painter is going to respond, I wasn't painting what she looked like. I was painting what she is like. And this is exactly what the Old Testament prophets and what John here in Revelation is doing. To think otherwise, to think that they're trying to give us a portrait of Jesus, creates a really strange image. Because if you take this in a very wooden, literal sense, it it doesn't make sense in our minds. So John is like an impressionist. He's not seeking to provide us with an exact picture of what Jesus looks like. He's seeking to give us a description of what he is like. See the difference? And this image is going to draw very heavily upon the book of Daniel. And it's going to draw heavily on Daniel's prophetic visions in Chapter 7 and chapters 10. And so you may actually recall this morning from reading in Daniel 7 that Daniel saw a terrible vision. It was a vision of four great beasts that were coming up out of the sea. And each one was symbolizing an evil kingdom that would rule for a time on earth. But in the vision, Daniel also sees God's heavenly courtroom. And there's these thrones that are set up for judgment, and then the Ancient of Days actually takes center stage. And then this vision continues by describing one like a son of man who was presented before the Ancient of Days. And if you go back to Daniel 7 and look at verse 14, if you kept your place, you can read this with me. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. There's that word in a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And you see what's going on here. John is seeing a very similar vision here in Revelation one. However, unlike Daniel, who must have been wondering, who is the son of man? Who is this that's going to rule forever, whose dominion shall not end? But John knows. John has that information. He goes, this is, this is Jesus. This is the Christ. John is literally seeing the fulfillment of these Old Testament Scriptures, the very ones that he's devoted his entire life to. I mean, he must have been astonished at seeing this. But the description doesn't just end there. We're told that he's clothed with a long kingly robe. And a priestly golden sash around his chest, which both of these are just a way of portraying Christ as both a kingly and priestly figure. You know, one of the things we talk about often in the church is how Christ is our, 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 our high king, our priest, and king, our prophet, priest, and king. There it is. And we're seeing some of that here in this image in Revelation 1. Listen to how Dr. Beale explains it. Uh, This is so cool, tying together his being in the midst of the lampstands. He said, part of Christ's priestly role is to tend to the lampstands, to the churches. The Old Testament priest would trim the lamps, he'd remove the wick and the old oil, he'd refill the lamps with fresh oil, and he'd relight the lamps that had gone out. In a similar way, Christ tends the church's lampstands by commending, by correcting, by exhorting and warning in order to secure the church's fitness for service as a light bearer in a dark world. Christ is tending the lamp of this church. Notice as well that John notes in verse 14 something about this image. He says, "...the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow." And here again, John is referring to Daniel 7. However, his description is no longer borrowing from the Son of Man language. John now is comparing this son of man to the ancient of days. Because in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, we read that as Daniel looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. Now listen to this. This is not the Son of Man. This is God Yahweh, the Ancient of Days. It says, his clothing was white as snow, his hair a head like pure wool. Do you see what's happening? John is acknowledging and declaring Jesus to be God. This is God. This this vision that I see, this Son of Man, this is God. And this is later solidified when Jesus tells John in verse 17, He says that I'm the first and the last. This is a clear reference to all those Old Testament passages where God says, I am the one who will declare what happens. I am the first and the last. For instance, in Isaiah 41, Yahweh declares, Who's performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and the last. I am He. Jesus is being declared to be the eternal God. And then borrowing from Daniel 10 and his further descriptions He says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, we don't have time to read all of Daniel 10 this morning, but I certainly would encourage you to read it to see these parallels because it's tremendous what you'll find. But in short, this comparison between what we're reading here in Revelation 1 and what you read in Daniel 10 is just meant to show the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. John is trying to tell us about this majestic vision he's seeing and he's pulling on everything he can to give us that image. And he's pulling from the Old Testament language that did the same thing. So as Jesus stands in the midst of his churches, these eyes of fire mean that nothing is hidden from his sight. Therefore, he's going to be able to say to each church in the following chapters, in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to start everything he says to them with, I know because nothing is hidden from his sight. His wisdom is infallible. His burnished bronze feet represent the purity that will crush all of his enemies. His voice, which is like a roar of many waters, is an allusion to Ezekiel 43, where God's coming was described as the sound of many waters. And if you've ever been to the ocean, especially during a storm, you know exactly how awe-inspiring that is to see the, the thundering of the waves upon the beach. And then finally we're told that from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, which is a direct reference to Isaiah 49, 2. And it's a reminder that God's word will conquer everything that opposes the rightful king. And I love Dr. Dennis Johnson. He sums this up so well. Listen to how he says this. He says, The symbols seen by John in the vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. He's in agreement with Dr. Ferguson here. And he says, His identity... It's showing his identity as the searcher of hearts, full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom, as the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. And he ends by saying, Revelation's visions show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. And now we've come full circle. Perception versus the truth. Revelation's visions show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. I mean, What an incredible vision. How do we allow the truth that God loves us and is working for our good to confront our lack of faith in those moments when our perceptions that can be so faulty and full of fear consume our thoughts and our emotions? We need a renewed vision of Jesus Christ. One like we've just received here in Revelation 1. You see, when we're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, we're forced to reevaluate our perception of things with new eyes. Imagine how John must have felt receiving this vision. He was no stranger to struggle, he was well acquainted with grief, he wasn't on this island by his choosing. But imagine how his faith must have been strengthened when he received this vision of the exalted Christ. What's going to compare with that? In fact, we don't have to wonder about his response. If you look to verse 17, he tells us what happened. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now remember, this is John. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John knew Jesus. And what happens when he receives this vision? It's like the pattern we see in Daniel 10. He fell down as though dead. And there's an application for us here to take from this. When we're confronted with a true revelation of Jesus Christ and all of His majesty and all of His glory, it's going to drive us to our knees in repentance because it immediately reminds us of our sinful condition and it's going to cause our heart to fear. That is what we call the bad news of the gospel. And that is a holy, good fear. But the good news is, Jesus doesn't leave John there, does He? Look what happens next in verse 17. He says, But He laid His right hand on Him, and saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And it's love how Jesus responds to John. He ever so gently lays his hand on him and reminds him, John, you, don't, you have nothing to fear. Now, why does he have nothing to fear? It's not because Jesus is safe. That's something we need to exit from our minds right away. It's not because Jesus is safe. This vision is an incredible reminder of exactly who Jesus is. This is the supreme being. This is the God who spoke to Job and said, hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? And there's like three chapters where God just questions Job. We sing about it in that song, Where Were You? And at the end, Job says, who was I? God, no, Jesus is not safe. But why then does he tell John not to fear in light of that? because of the cross. It reminds me of the promise that was given to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the promise of an offspring that Rick's been talking about that just weaves its way throughout the rest of Scripture, and then it's finally found fulfillment in Jesus. And here in Revelation 1, it's as if Jesus is telling us, see, John, I've been in control all along. I've walked this path that you're so fearful to walk through, and I've come out the other side victorious. I've seen death, but I'm alive forevermore. And John, I hold the keys to death and Hades. You do not have to be afraid. And this should cause our hearts to just overflow with praise and adoration for our risen King. Not only does a true revelation of Jesus draw us to our knees in repentance, a true revelation of Jesus should always cause our hearts to worship. In theology, it's what you say, proper theology should always lead to doxology. If you get who God is, who Jesus is, right, your immediate response should be to offer praise and worship. The reason for this is because it reminds us that God's love for us has been demonstrated in the most profound way possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no greater love than this. Thus, we can rest assured that He will sustain us no matter what life throws our way. So yes, life is often difficult. And yes, at times our faith is often weak. And as a result, our hearts may be prone to fear, but when those times come, remember this vision of Jesus from Revelation 1. Read again of His power and majesty and be reminded that He can handle anything you're going through. But remember as well that gentle touch that reminds us that He's not only all-powerful, but we need not fear because He loves us. And then allow your heart to rejoice in the truth that He's overcome the world. And take comfort that it's often in these times of weakness that, like John, God so profoundly meets us with His loving presence. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for this magnificent vision of Your Son, Jesus, here in Revelation 1. And Father, we pray that it would change our perspective, that it would By renewing our vision of Jesus, it would give us a new confidence in you. Father, we pray this morning that this would be something that would be transmitted from our brain to our heart. It would be something that would help us to change, that would sanctify us, and it would cause us to uh, leave leave this service seeking to do your will for your honor and glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name.